Hillary Clinton was nice enough to let West Virginia coal miners know she's going to knock them out of a job. And now the Democratic frontrunner in Iowa, Bernie Sanders, who's leading in the polls at present, at least one poll, says he's going to put Des Moines insurance, health insurance workers out of a job. But have no fear. They've got something even better. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. In this episode, Paul reviews the big stories for the second full week of 2020 as they appear on thisiscommonsense.com. Here's Paul. And of course, what is being offered now is a new job and money. And in, in other words, it's nothing to just put coal miners out of work and just give them new jobs, find them new jobs in some new industry that the government creates. And in the meantime, just pay all their bills and all their health care. Let's not let anybody suffer. But we now have the ability, apparently, to just shelve whole industries. And, and no problem. Don't you worry your pretty little head about it. You're going to get a new job in, you know, two years, a year, three, five. Bernie Sanders is talking about billions and billions, not billionaires, but billions and billions of dollars in this bill that he's proposing, Medicare for all, to pay for the dislocation of half a million insurance employees, health insurance employees. This is just unbelievable. And, you know, the truth is, I reacted uh, like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, uh, we've all known that that's what they're talking about because that's, you know, when, when uh, Kamala Harris first said, yes, I would end private insurance, uh, she, she got some backlash. But Bernie's said this all along. He's not, you know, to do his credit, uh, the ideologue on the, on the far, far left uh, doesn't hide stuff very much. I mean, I think he's, he's fairly straightforward. In some ways, um, you know, he's a more, a more honest opponent. I disagree with almost all of his issues, but boy, when you agree with him, he might actually do what he says. He believes in things. He seems to. Now, unfortunately, a lot of what he believes in is socialism with a capital S and maybe with a C, you know, replacing it as, as communism is a guy who they you know, honeymooned in the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and has nothing but good things to say about Castro, about the Soviet Union, uh, about folks like Morales in uh, uh, Bolivia uh, and, and others who have, who, you know, Venezuela, he certainly doesn't condemn in the way that, uh, uh, that a lot of us have. And, and so this is someone who we've always kind of suspected is pretty soft for capital C communists. And one of our commentaries this week was revolutionaries for Bernie. We have Bernie suggesting very huge changes in the economy, uh, kind of like a command economy. I don't know. Uh, communists have command economies, you might note, uh, academically. And then... This week, we had an event that we discussed in a commentary called Revolutionaries for Bernie. And it came out that a fellow, Kyle Jurek, who is a uh, field manager for uh, the Sanders campaign in Iowa, 
was caught by Project Veritas, uh, James O'Keefe, controversial, um, I think has done very, very good work, basically took down ACORN by showing, you know, what, what office after office of ACORN around the country was all about from their hidden camera interviews. And uh, he's hated on the left. Uh, and I think he has made some mistakes. I think his, his, uh, his attempt to kind of sting the Washington Post would have caused a story that was untrue to be propagated on the public. And, and I think that was a real mistake. But I think generally uh, what he's doing is pretty heroic journalism. And, uh, and I applaud him. Uh, and and I've, I've met him. I know him. I like him. And I think, uh, I think he's trying to do the right thing. So, uh, uh, you know, all the, all the kind of hate that's sent his way by people, uh, I don't feel that at all. I feel the, the reverse. But um, he and, and Project Veritas really fill a role that you don't have a lot of media investigating the left in the way that it investigates the right, because the media is on the left. And, uh, you know, we got to pretend that's, that's, you know, it's not every media outlet all the time is, you know, saluting the, the Democratic Party, but overwhelmingly. The media is on the left and just doesn't ask the same questions, doesn't investigate the left in the way that they do uh, the right. And so I, th I think Project Veritas serves a great uh, service to the public. And here they have a field manager for Sanders talking about gulags and talking about how fascists, meaning anyone who might support Donald Trump, um, and you get the sense it might someday mean anyone who doesn't support Bernie Sanders or whoever Kyle Jurek thinks is the, you know, is the, uh, the Fuhrer or the Commandant or the uh, great imperial leader or whatever. Just outrageous things being talked about in the most horrifying totalitarian, you know, Russian communism millions being re-educated like the Chinese are trying to do with the Uyghurs and so on. Um, just unbelievable that someone could talk that way um, to someone that, you know, pretty obviously they don't know very well because the person was secretly filming them. Uh, so it's not like, you know, a childhood friend. Anyway, uh, just unbelievable. And yet very little news coverage of it. When we went to press and, and in looking for stories, I've seen nothing more. But when we posted that story, um, there had been nothing. And to this date, there has been nothing done to uh, get rid of Kyle Jurek to say, you're fired. We don't allow people who want a Pol Pot style communist takeover of America to run our, our campaign. And yet, Basically, it was sloughed off as, you know, some sort of propaganda or, or uh, gossip by a campaign manager in, in uh, Iowa, a Sanders, uh, the Sanders state director, and nothing from Sanders. And uh, in my searches of the Washington Post, New York Times, no story on it. And so the story here to me originally was, wow this person talks in such a way that it's just terrifying to think that people think this way. And it's important that we know that sometimes they do. 
uh, and that surely they will take care of business and say, you're fired, and this is not what our campaign's about. And instead, because it isn't a story that was invented in the, you know, I don't mean invented in a bad way, that it wasn't the idea of the story didn't come from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the AP or one of the networks that's on the left, it doesn't get covered. And in essence, Kyle Jurek, I believe, is still working. Uh, they, they have kind of locked up their Twitter accounts in, in Iowa, but is still working for the Sanders campaign. And the Sanders campaign has done nothing to come out and say, we repudiate this type of thinking that when someone doesn't agree with us politically, they should be sent to a re-education camp. And just the, it's kind of a, a funny, yes, there are people who are this foolish. He also made the argument that, that you know, the gulags weren't that bad. Um, you know, he seemed to have, one, have the idea that, boy, if you were sent to a gulag, it means you were out of step with the revolution. And that's a pretty doggone serious offense, which most of us just don't think that's as serious, you know. Terrible, but not that serious. And, um, and then also the, that, you know, the gulags, look, you know, I don't know, maybe you got three meals, wasn't so bad. You know, you'd learn new revolutionary songs to sing. I'm sure he could go travel to the Uyghur, to the millions of Uyghurs who are being, you know, institutionalized and tortured in China and explain that, you know, it could be worse. So uh, just shows, I think, uh, one that we, there, there are a lot of people who just get carried away. And when you think of Kyle Jurek, you think of somebody who just has let politics and ideology and stuff get the best of them. And that happens and that's sad. But a much sadder event is the fact that we live in a country in which the news media doesn't report this story and that this, because the news media doesn't really care about this story, doesn't because it doesn't fit the narrative, I guess that they want to run with. That I think I think that's what it is. Um, you know, I don't I don't have smoking guns. I haven't tape recorded all the conversations. I think that's what it is. My newspaper has a narrative in every story. It seems the Washington Post that I read, uh, and and and. Much of the media seems to have a narrative. This doesn't fit it, and so it doesn't get covered. And that says that the problem is a lot bigger than one foolish uh, guy who's gotten politically carried away. So um, the next uh, day's commentary that I, I want to talk about uh, is kind of funny and kind of not funny. And... It's, it's about a, uh, primarily about the Libertarian Party as a whole, but also about one particular candidate uh, who's running for president as the Libertarian. And you're talking about Monday's piece, uh, Vermin Competition? That, that is right. And Vermin Supreme, uh, who I met uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, when I went to the uh, Massachusetts Libertarian Party convention um, in... Uh, and, and, you know, very interesting guy, uh, funny, wears a boot on his head, uh, which is, you know, you just don't run into people that often that are wearing a boot on their head. And, uh, and, and, but this is a very intelligent guy. 
and and a master performer. Uh, very quick on his feet and funny, and and he's mocking. You know, it's a, he's going to give free ponies to everybody. Uh, he really has a sensible, funny, uh, penetrating, cogent uh, uh, statement to make about politics in America today. But he's making it in the in the wrong arena. And I, I did not go into this kind of detail in the, and in fact, this wasn't even the thrust of my commentary. Uh, my commentary is much more about Lincoln Chafee, who, who let's talk about here in a second. But it occurred to me that in essence, Vermin Supreme, because he's the only candidate wearing a boot on his head, and because he's funnier than the other candidates, and maybe a little sharper in, in that way, that he's a performer in ways that they are not performers. Um, so much of it is about him. And it becomes a mockery, which of course, that's what he's doing is, is satire. But it becomes a mockery, not of politics as much as a mockery of the Libertarian Party and of a, a mockery of politics uh, across the board in such a way that here this party that wants to talk about freedom and how our liberties, our rights, are the essential thing that government should be instituted to protect and we need to be focused on that and putting forward policy positions and changes in the law that will you know, make us freer and, and hold government more accountable. Policy prescriptions that should be very serious. You know, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to wear black every day and never smile. I'm talking about, but, but serious and thoughtful and important and stuff that you want someone to listen to for a second because, hey, maybe here's a better way to build a mousetrap. Vermin Supreme kind of dumps all over that. And I don't think he's, uh, his goal, I don't think uh, he's like some secret CIA, you know, agent who's, who was sent to dump all over that. I think his intentions are, are honorable, that he's, he's trying to have fun, he's trying to make a point, he's doing it in a way that is kind of fun, and boy, anytime politics can be fun, you know, it's better than not having fun. So, but it does end up mocking, I think, the Libertarian Party. He needs to run as an independent and maybe come to the Libertarian Party things if you think you can get press there. <laughs> if you want my PR opinion for you know, maybe a, a small fee, I'd probably suggest that that's probably not the place you're going to get the most press. But why not go to the Republican and the Democrat and enter some of these other things? Make this point. But I think the way he makes it within the Libertarian Party is mocking the Libertarian Party. And I think that if it's not the way that Libertarians view it, uh, I think it is primarily the way out people outside the Libertarian Party view it. The people I know who are no, who've never been involved in that, who aren't Libertarians, but who, who are sympathetic, who know I am and might make a comment to me about it, they see him as mocking the Libertarian Party. Um, so that I think is a, it, you know, I wish him luck in his endeavors outside of the Libertarian Party, I think. Um, but, but the interesting thing is he got more votes, that was the point of the commentary, than the most accomplished candidate 
running for the presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party, Lincoln Chafee. And we made the point that it's kind of interesting, here is a Democrat who's running as, uh, as a Libertarian now. Um, and of course, last time Libertarians ran for president, the, the, the ticket that had the most executive experience in office running for president in 2016 was not Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine, was not uh, uh, Pence and Trump. It was the Libertarian ticket of Gary Johnson, the former two-term governor of New Mexico, and Bill Weld, the former two-term governor of Massachusetts. And, uh, and so, and, and of course, before that, uh, Bill Barr ran as a, uh, as a Libertarian. Is it Bill Barr? Bob Barr? Bob Barr. Bob Barr, isn't it? Not Bill. Right, it's Bob. Yes, Bob. Sorry. Um, I just want to say that to anyone who is offended, I'm really sorry. If I offended you, I am really sorry. Actually, I'm sorry even if I didn't offend you because I made a mistake, and that is the third one this decade. It's really starting to... Anyway. <laughs> uh, but they've, we, we've... Libertarians, and I say we, I, I consider myself a libertarian. I tended to vote, it, vote more Republican than Democrat when there's not libertarians, but, but consider myself a, a libertarian. And um, we have attracted more from conservatives. I think that's largely because economics tends to trump no pun intended, and and uh, and so we tend to draw more from the right and and free market conservatives than from the left. But that's you know it's it's certainly not an eighty twenty thing, but uh, but it was interesting to see someone coming from the left. And of course, our friend Tom Knapp, um, and I don't always agree with his comments, but he had two very good comments, giving information that I lacked in writing the commentary. Um, you know, you're never supposed to say that. I know everything, but but I would what I had read, which I thought was interesting, and led me to to want to do this commentary, had not mentioned that uh, ballots had gone out before Chafee got in the race. So if you voted for Chafee, you had to write in. Of course, Ver Vermin Supreme beat Chafee 26, I believe, to four. So it wasn't very close either. Um, the other thing is, is that this isn't the end all and be all. This isn't the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire picking their delegates or voting their preference. This is kind of a, uh, it, it's a preference poll. It's a, it's a poll, a straw poll, that sort of thing. It has no real meaning. But of course, when you think about it, most of the primaries that Republicans, Republicans and Democrats hold are preference primaries. They aren't actually deciding legally who is going to vote for whom. They are, the, the delegates who are picked are free to vote any way they want. And of course the conven convention can change that. And this last time in 2016, the convention did adopt a rule that those, those uh, uh, delegates needed to vote for Trump on the first round. But the, a lot of times the media is talking about these as if they're picking delegates and these delegates are bound to those people when they are not bound to those people. And it's a, it's a huge disservice to the public. Um, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but you know, it, it's like they report about the war powers resolution that the house passed 
as if it's going to have some uh, impact. They, they report about all kinds of things that I think oftentimes they don't bother to tell people this doesn't have any real world impact, um, which I think it, it, part of the job of the media is not just to report the news, but to let us know, you know when something has legs and when it doesn't have any legs. Vermin Supreme is a kind of an amusing creature. Uh, and I don't, do you know what his actual opinions are? I mean, he seems to be a satirist from a quasi-libertarian perspective. Do you know anything more than that? I really don't. Um, and I talked to him some at this event that I went to, and he wasn't 100% always in character, but almost 100% always in character. So you didn't really get that. And he's, he's not, he's, he's making fun of things but he's not putting forward a, a serious platform because of course that's not his shtick. And, and, and if he was putting forward a serious platform, it would kind of mess up his, his jokes and his jokes would mess up his platform. So, you know, I understand what he's doing and, and, you know, applaud him for being a pretty decent actor and, uh, and a pretty decent performer. But uh, I, I also want to want to get back though, just briefly to mention that, Lincoln Chafee, I think, will have a tough time. He will have to fight for this nomination. And, and sometimes you think, well, this is a big fish and he's in a little pond. But little ponds, you gotta, you got to pay attention to those fish. They're used to, used to having somebody who will pay attention and listen to what they want. And libertarians are not, you know, their goal isn't to win the next, next election no matter what. Their goal is to send a message about what they believe in and about liberty. And, and so they're going to want to make sure he's solid enough on issues and can speak in a way that will, you know, that will send the right libertarian message. And I have to say, I, I have looked at, and in fact, it was you who, you know, when, when he first announced it, had mentioned to me that, you know, he, he was emphasizing a lot of the anti-war uh, sentiments and, and end these endless wars. And uh, lo and behold, going to his website and looking at some different things, um, you weren't you weren't fibbing, and uh, he is really emphasizing uh, civil liberties, stop spending us into the poorhouse, and end the endless wars. And I think he has a, a decent message. It'll be interesting to see kind of how he also talks about telling the truth. And I think when someone like Lincoln Chafee, who's been mayor, governor, senator, uh, been a Republican. One of the things Tom Knapp, of course, pointed out is, yes, he's a Democrat becoming a libertarian, but before that, he was a Republican who became an independent, who then became a Democrat, who's now becoming a libertarian. So, um, but, but when you've done that, it seems to me he's going to have to say, look, Obviously, I haven't, I haven't my entire life been a down-the-road libertarian on every issue. And, and how he speaks to that and, and so on, I think, makes a big difference. For instance, you know, I think a lot of times when libertarians are running for something like president, they're asked, you know, all these hypothetical questions and, and do you, you know, will we get to a libertarian society and so on? Um, you know, nobody asks Reagan, are we going to get to that shining city on a hill? Because everybody knows, no, you're not. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. And I'm, I'm, I don't even know how shining that city is. It seems like there's a lot of glare. You got to wear sunglasses. I much prefer a libertarian society 
not shining so much and it doesn't even have to be on a hill. I don't think I'm getting there either. We're, we're in the society we're in. And I think one thing that, that libertarians can do is send a message that we believe in the process. And, you know, we, we believe in more than just the process. We believe in freedom. But I think sometimes we're painted as these radicals who, you know, will just do whatever. And that's not how the system works. And one of the problems we have is that we have two parties who, I was going to say they game the system, but that sounds so much nicer than what they're doing. Well, they rig it. It's they rigging rig it. The system. And they cheat and they will destroy the system if it helps them. And they will, like Congress, hand away all their power against the very design of the framers that the, that the Congress would be the branch that represents the people most directly and is the first and most powerful branch of government, they've handed away all that power to be able to say, hey, it wasn't our fault, it's the bureaucracy, it's the courts, it's somebody else's fault, reelect me, the pension's great, the pay's great, I get, I get all kinds of knowledge that makes me one of the, you know, so much better a stock picker than I used to be. Um, you know, it's, it's a great job. And so that's, that's something that the, the, the way libertarians are not going to succeed merely by saying, look, freedom's wonderful. People agree that freedom's wonderful, but they want to know what are you going to do right now in the real world? How's it going to affect me? Are my kids going to have a school to go to? Are there going to be taxes? Are there not? You know, we can say taxation is theft and then explain philosophically why that is so, or, or argue that's not so. Nobody cares. Nobody is, nobody's at home thinking about this next election saying, but my real question is taxation theft. That is an academic question. They're interested in real stuff. And, and so I think, Someone who can articulate, look, we want a society that is freer. We believe the answer to almost every problem, certainly most of the problems, is to free up the energies of the American people to solve these problems and get government out of the way. That's what we believe. But we are committed to a process that obviously it's democratic. There's checks and balances. If the public isn't willing to go certain places, we don't go there. At the same time, we could be very dynamic in terms of saying the war on marijuana is over. And maybe a libertarian president would say the war on drugs is over because a libertarian president could pardon every single federal offender in that war. That war is over. Now, it could still exist at the state level, but we all know that the truth is the states are pushing back at the feds, saying we, you know, states all over. I don't know what the number is even now, but I think it's eight or something are recreational uh, marijuana is legalized and, and many more than that, that, that medical marijuana in a way that virtually anyone who wants to smoke marijuana can do so. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to be dying of cancer. Uh, to get to get marijuana in those medical marijuana states. So there, there's tremendous things that libertarians can do, but I think that um, they have to be very forthright in where they are going to draw the line and say, I'm going to use my presidential power to do this and this and this. 
And, and that means that even with the Congress controlled by two parties that don't like you, there's a tremendous amount the president could do on foreign policy, on, on criminal justice issues, so on and so on. But I think you also have to comfort people with the idea that, look, you may disagree with me, but I'm not, I, I don't believe in a government by presidential fiat. I'm not going to do things that are against the laws of the United States, even if I believe those laws are not just. I'm only going to use the legal power I have. And I think that that would be very comforting to the, to the public, not, not just because you're going to have some people saying, oh, those libertarians are going to do all this crazy stuff, because, because we've been more forthright about how far we'd like to go ultimately. But I think that it, it also is comforting because I think there are an awful lot of Democrats and Republicans who are troubled by the level of lawlessness in the government, absolute lawlessness. And I mean Democrats who are upset about the level of democratic lawlessness, the level of lawlessness in the Obama administration. And I mean Republicans who are upset about the level of lawlessness in the Trump administration. So I think there is an audience out there that, well, for instance, Justin Amash, who, and I don't say I've studied every issue, but he's so refreshing in that he explains his votes. I agree with him on on almost every issue. Uh, I don't really agree with him on impeachment. I mean, I I don't argue that someone can say, look, what Trump has done I think is impeachable. I'm gonna vote to impeach him. Okay, that's what you think. Um, I wouldn't vote that way. I wouldn't push that way just because I think it's so destructive at a time in which the country doesn't need that. I just, I just don't think we gain from it. Um, we could debate the fine points of what Trump's done, but, I, but the ultimately to me, I wouldn't be pushing it. I don't think I'd vote for it because I don't think they rise. I don't think what Trump's done rises to that. Um, but I do think that you have a, a government, you've got a deep state that, I mean, as I point out to people, you don't have to like Trump to be scared of the deep state. And you well, don't have to like the deep state to be scared of Trump. And uh, I have a good friend, I told him during the campaign that Trump kind of scares me. And so anytime he would call me, he'd say, you're still scared? And, uh, and, and I have to say, I'm less scared. I'm less scared than I was. I think Trump's been a better president than I thought he would be, admittedly low bar. Um, But I think the biggest factor in my fear factor about Trump is that the media, and I'm talking about, you know, basically everybody but Fox News and talk radio, which doesn't do a lot of investigating uh, in, in, you know, they they aren't the investigative journalists, they're the, the let's talk about it journalists, but the investigating media the daily press media is so over the top against Obama, uh, against Trump that I, I, you know, I just sleep a little easier at night. It, Mr. Trump is going to have a heck of a time getting away with anything because he's got a lot of people watching him. And, and it's easy to kind of say, well, geez, after Obama, I mean, you know, the, the media, there's the Saturday Night Live uh, skit where the media was asking Obama if the pillow they got him was soft enough, you know, and and uh, just were, were so not deferential to Obama. They were cheerleaders for Obama. 
Um, and then with Trump, it's a, it's you know a little bit of uh, of what is it? What's you know you need a neck brace, a little bit of uh, of hit and run there, and and and. It sounds like you've gone into Friday's uh, column already. Much ado in yes. DC. You're, yeah. you're actually well into Fridays, it sounds like. So we're talking about much ado in DC from January the seventeenth. Yeah, you're, <laughs> that's very true. Um, which, which I, I think the interesting thing about about where we are now is we we mentioned in Fridays uh, that there is no requirement. You know, this is the second time Bill Clinton was being impeached during his. 1999 uh, State of the Union. And of course, now we're going to have Trump, same thing. And of course, Trump doesn't have to go to Congress. Uh, Thomas Jefferson used to, you know, write him out and send him by mail, I guess, or maybe by courier. And, um, and so Trump could do it in a very Trumpian way, which is by tweet, tweet after tweet after tweet. And not even keep in some of the misspellings just to give it that authenticity and uh anyway it it does seem to me that that so many people talk about trump tweeting and even republicans who are supporters and defenders of the president say now i wish he didn't tweet so much but i have to say um how insane an idea to think that trump would stop tweeting it is, it is a power beyond anything any president has ever had. And I don't really, I don't in my head have when exactly Twitter took off, how much Obama was able to use Twitter. And my sense is that Twitter wasn't as hot, quite as hot a commodity then. My other sense is that Obama wasn't looking to use that. In essence, didn't really need to use it. I mean, if the, if the regular media is going to cheerlead for you, you don't really have to go around the media. But think about a president without Twitter whose every utterance of that president is either mailed to you or, or do you have, they have to buy television time or radio time to broadcast it to you, or it goes through the filter of the mainstream media. Think about a President Trump whose every utterance is either paid for communication to you, which would get expensive if you got to do that all the time, or it's through the filter of the mainstream media. He would be in big trouble. And the, the, the ability to use Twitter to go directly to the American people is incredible. And, and I don't say that, you know, a lot of people out there might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not on this Twitter, you know, I'm not following the president on Twitter. And of course I actually have hit the, hit the button to follow him, but I almost never go on Twitter. So when he tweets something, I'm not hearing it because he's, he tweeted it, uh, or at least I'm not hearing it on Twitter. I'm hearing it in the mainstream media. Because now the media, it's easy. It's 140 characters. You can't really say, oh, we couldn't, we just were going to tell you about it. We couldn't actually show it to you. So they're showing you exactly what Trump wanted to say and said without any misquoting. And there it is. That's a tremendous power. And I can't imagine a president not making as much use of it as, as Trump. And even if the media isn't you know, I, you know, maybe if they're, if they love you as much as they liked Obama, 
you know, maybe you don't have to, but any future president is going to want to be using Twitter in a very strategic way. And Trump, I don't know how disciplined he is in terms of having some strategic vision and following that or, or not just doing it off the, you know, shooting from the hip every time. Um, he certainly has had his share of misspellings. Um, and he's said some things that I think are stupid and shouldn't have said. But boy, has Twitter been tremendous for him. He's also, through Twitter, changed the conversation of the mainstream media in a way that he couldn't have done if he didn't have Twitter. I mean, he has basically changed the whole conversation of the country overnight because he said something that they thought was so crazy or something. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, there's, there's some interesting things that, that I think are worth keeping in mind. Um, I was very much appalled by the idea of a Muslim ban the idea that you would ban a certain religion from coming into the country. And Trump said that. It was reported widely. As I recall, I think it was a couple weeks maybe later that he backed off of that and said, no, I'm talking about Muslim-majority countries and specific ones and so on, which is a different issue in, in my mind. I think a president could make the argument for that while a president could never make the argument for banning all Muslims, that that would just be a foul of the, of the Constitution and every fiber of, you know, of, of our being, our democratic being. See, I can, I can be on the, on the pro-democracy side. Anyway, but, but here's the thing about Trump. That Muslim ban, which I found so offensive, and the media found offensive, they found it so offensive that when he backed off of it, they never really let him back off of it. They always kind of talked about the Muslim ban as if it was the same thing he originally announced. I saw an article that talked about polling that showed a majority of the country, not a majority of Republicans, a majority of the country, when he said that, agreed with that statement. Now, I find that scary about my country, but also find that interesting in that I wonder if Trump was aware of that. It's one thing to say something that seems out there and then strategically, politically, to move to a position that's more defensible. But why do that? Why take the beating on an issue like that if you're going to move? Now, I would say, you know, don't take that position because it's the wrong position. But if you're just thinking pragmatically, what's good for me? Well, it is probably wise to take a position that tells people you're serious about protecting them or whatever the, the positive thing is about what you're trying to do. It makes you look much more serious. You get beat up on it, which means now the focus is even more on it. And, and there you are, the majority of the people, every time they hear the story. It, it reminds me, in, in 1994, I think the media thought that the contract with America was a gimmick and that it didn't make Republicans look very good to have these, you know, 10 items and so on. 
But of course, every time those, they mention those 10 items, they mention term limits. And they mention a balanced budget and, and living under the laws and so on. And I think in a sense, the media would, would report more about the contract than they might have because they thought this will hurt these Republicans and the media is largely, at least the folks writing the stories in Washington, D.C., are almost all on the, on the Democratic side, if not further to the left than, than the Democrats. And, and so, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where it just, it feeds on itself. And I see, I see Trump, I think, do that a lot, where he picks a fight in a very smart place. I'm not talking about smart in the great, what a wonderful thing to do, but politically smart in that his opponent is fighting a battle that they're not winning if the goal is to get more people to vote for you and support what you're doing. And, uh, and so he's, uh, he's no dummy. And, and uh, I have an awful lot of media friends who, when I say that I think he's a, a communications genius, you know, their heads explode. Um, but he's a communications genius. You know, that's almost a, a variation of the Mott and Bailey tactic. Are you familiar with that metaphor? I'm not. I'm not. The Mott was the uh, heavily fortified uh, structure in a medieval town, and the Bailey was the less fortified place where the people lived. And the idea of a Mott-Bailey tactic is that people come out with a, um, an extravagant statement, and, uh, and they say, you know, there's something that really isn't defensible. People attack it, and then they retreat to their Mott statement, which is something that almost everybody agrees with. Right. And and they abandon the the ideas in the medieval cities that you can't you can't you, you bring everybody in when you're under big attack to the mot, and uh, in the, and in rhetoric, uh, if you're uh, if you've said for instance that uh, you know all wages should be equalized, you know that we sh we should have wage and price controls so that women and men have the same uh, same incomes, right? That, that that would be one thing. It's people then say. Well, that's just crazy. We can't have we can't have wage and price controls. We can't we can't micromanage the economy. That would be stupid. And then they say, "Oh, I don't really mean that. What I really mean is that people just should be treated equally. Women and men should be treated equally." And so they go retreat to their mot. Uh, oddly, uh, Trump is doing something similar, uh, but by saying the extravagant thing, he gets other people to re to retreat to his mot. Uh, it's a rather interesting. Uh, yes, it's, it's and it's almost as if he's trying to get people to go into the mot. The, the, the position that he, it is easier to defend. Yes, well, and, and he, he also has been able to control the news cycle for uh, almost every day, day after day after day after day, and in part doing things. And it's like uh, with the Soleimani uh, killing, People saying, well, he may have done that just to take something else off the front page and so on. And, you know, the, the Bill Clinton was accused of doing that when he bombed, you know, Monica Lewinsky was testifying or there was something coming out. And, and in that case, and all of a sudden he's bombed a pill factory in Sudan and, and somewhere in Afghanistan. And it's, you know, he was accused of that same thing. And of course, it's very possible. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing after, uh, uh, soon after the, the Ukraine uh, scandal was, was, you know, talked about and, and Trump's doing this to help his own reelection. And then, of course, 
the Chinese uh, uh, trade deal. Well, there's tremendous pressure on any president. Uh, Trump gets a trade deal with China and they buy a bunch of agricultural products. Um, you know, that's going to be a lot better for his reelection. Then he continues to have a fight and doesn't get the trade deal done and farmers are in trouble or he's having to, to you know, kind of in, in uh, Bernie Sanders fashion, he's having to find a pot of money to give to the people that because of his tariffs are, you know, are losing all this money. Uh, same sort of economic idea that presidents to help themselves and the economy and everybody else, of course, but mainly themselves politically are going to be switching around money and jobs and deciding things like they're some kind of very ancient dictator. Um, so it's, you know, all of these, any of these type things, the, the president has incredible power. Um, and, and, you know, they're very little controls. And of course, it's, I think a lot of this lately um, with Iran and so on, I've been very frustrated because there's a lot of talk about whether, you know, he legally could do this. And it does seem like Congress has given him such legal leeway they can do anything. And very little talk about where should those parameters be. And I think if you start to talk about where should those parameters be, we're going on a tangent, but it's a good one. Um, if you start to talk about where those parameters be, you have to really start talking about our foreign policy in a more complete way and not a one-off of, because almost any one-off, should we keep troops in Syria to stop Turkey from doing X, Y, and Z, which of course I think we could have pulled the troops out and still stop Turkey from doing it if we were really serious about doing that. Um, but we, then we have to question, is that what we want to do? But almost any one-off, there's always the, well, we just need to, we just need to, you know, express our strength and show people how strong we are and fight. Anytime we don't fight, we encourage, you know, more, uh, you know, games, gamesmanship on the other side and so on. And, and the reality is that it, unless you look at it as a whole, you're always kind of, well, let's just keep, keep on keeping on. And our policies, uh, they need, a, they need, we, we're all over the world and, and uh, we, all we know is that we're not being told the truth, Afghanistan. And I don't, think, I don't think we've really done a commentary since the Washington Post and New York Times have, uh, have released the stuff about all the lying, uh, which is not just the Trump administration, but does continue to be the Trump administration, but Obama administration and Bush administration where they've just constantly lied about what's going on in Afghanistan. And when there's bad news, we'll even go to the extent, and this seems to be happening more under President Trump, we'll go to the extent of classifying the bad news so it cannot be reported. Um, and this is, this is not a recipe for a great country to remain great, um, or a free country certainly to remain free. So that's, that's a huge problem, but we should get to our last commentary of the week. And the one, as I mentioned to you before we started taping, has legs. It's called... Poked, Stoked, and Woke. Yes. <laughs> that's from the uh, Tuesday, it looks like. Yes. And, and you, didn't like the, you didn't like the word woke. 
because it's so overused on the left. But that's why I liked it. And I remember we went back and forth on that. But, but uh, I did like it because I think that the left, meaning the Democrats in Virginia who've taken over the legislature and Governor Northam, have hit a hornet's nest and have woke uh, a lot of regular people, not all conservatives, um, but conservatives and Second Amendment activists, uh, they are looking to do all kinds of things on guns that will have no impact whatsoever on any of the, you know, the mass shooting years ago in Virginia Tech, the mass shooting last year, 12 people killed by a city employee in Virginia Beach. And I, I note that Virginia Beach, the people of Virginia Beach through their city council have named themselves a Second Amendment sanctuary city. So, you know, if, if your goal is to have solidarity with Virginia Beach, the people of Virginia Beach don't want happening what the legislature is trying to do. But it's, it's gotten even weirder as the week has gone on because Governor Northam has declared a state of emergency. And there's a huge rally planned for Monday, the 20th, Martin Luther King Day. And, um, and they know that there's going to be hundreds, maybe thousands of Second Amendment activists who have a right to conceal carry or who might want to open carry. And the governor announces that because of a state of emergency, he is canceling basically Second Amendment rights. Local court, state court, uh, uh, circuit judge upheld that and is allowing him to basically cancel. No one can have a gun on the, on the Capitol grounds. Um, and it's, it's, I think, designed largely to just tweak the folks there. They've had rallies every year. Now, this one's going to be bigger because the problem in the legislature is a whole lot bigger. Um, but it's interesting. In my commentary, I pointed out something. In his State of the Commonwealth speech, Governor Northam basically said, let, let this be a debate, the gun debate. Let it be a debate about facts, not fear. And it just hit me because he had tried to push all kinds of gun changes through a special session, which he called right after that mass shooting in Virginia Beach. And in essence, tried to use fear and, and that moment in time to have not a thoughtful debate, but a debate where political pressure and emotions forced a certain decision. And Republicans had none of it to their credit. They, they went to Richmond, they gaveled in, they said, we're not gonna do the govern governor's agenda on, on violating second amendment rights. They adjourned and they went home. Now, and much has been made that, you know, they lost their maturity on the gun issue. Uh, which it was an issue, not the biggest issue, not the second biggest issue. I mean, healthcare, other issues were much bigger in the state. But, but it, it's, it's interesting to me that I think after almost every election, like I thought uh, Hillary Clinton was likely to win in 2016. And in thinking ahead, what do I want to be doing in 2017? I thought I can be more aggressive. There's gonna be a huge backlash to the fact that now Hillary Clinton is in control. 
and Democrats would have been more likely to say, oh, okay, well, everything's fine. Boom. I'm not so worried about it. I'm going to be spending more time doing something else other than politics. Conservatives, limited government people would have been much more attuned to what's going on, much more ready to make something happen in terms of changing back, changing to, you know, uh, politically. And, and so there were opportunities. Same is true. It's not surprising that Democrats had a wave in 2018. That's who's energized. And I think you almost always see that, that it'd be one thing, look, if the, if the public's waiting for their side to get in power, and once they do, everything's going to be wonderful, well, then you wouldn't see this flip back and forth. I mean, look at the, the U.S. Congress, after not flipping, have been Democrat for 40 years until 1994, has flipped several times since then. And it's largely because they, they, they aren't successful. Republicans, when they were in control, Republicans were bitterly complaining. When Democrats have been in full control, Democrats have bitterly complained. They're not successful. And so you're going to have that flip back and forth. And I think what Northam has done, in essence, is to give Republicans a huge opportunity to energize and to make, you know, two years from now, a much better situation. Um, so I, I hope that's what will happen. I do think you're going to see a lot of people there uh, on Monday. And I think, again, this is the sort of, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting if this was an argument between keeping people safe. These are all gun safety measures now. The Washington Post, everything I've read in the last couple of days about these measures, they're not gun control. They're not gun restrictions. They're all about gun safety. Because who could be opposed to safety? And, uh, but I think you're going to, I think you're, you know, it would be a different story if these were measures that would actually make some difference. They are symbolic measures. Um, if, if you think that you're going to outlaw assault weapons, military style assault weapons, now weapons don't come with some little checkbox, military assault, not military assault. These are words, <laughs> they're not how guns come. And so, but whatever gun you are trying to basically outlaw, it's still gonna get here. It's not gonna get here by honest people. The crooks can still get that gun. The honest people can't. After every one of these shootings, they suggest different things. And then the, the operative question, if that had been in place would have made any difference in that shooting and that person getting a gun? And the answer is again and again, no. So what's the, what's the point? The point is to have a political fight about it. The point is for someone to win and someone to lose. And then whoever wins or loses gets control of that big piggy bank. Trillions, trillions every year. It's not about guns. It's about trillions of dollars. It's about using that issue to hold power or to retake power. And, um, and not that that probably isn't the way Republican politicians, uh, I go, uh, not every week, unfortunately, cause I'm too busy, but, um, my wonderful oldest daughter, uh, who's, who's provided two grandsons already. Good job. Uh, I go hopefully every week, uh, sometimes every other week and we watch Veep. I don't have HBO. She has it. The greatest show ever. It is, it 
is the most accurate portrayal of Washington, D.C. politics I have ever seen, spot on, because everyone is all about themselves and about nothing else. So I'm sure that when Republican politicians are thinking about guns and Democrats politicians are thinking about guns, they're thinking about themselves and politics and winning and having the power to handle the money. Monday, when I go to Richmond, I'm going to be with people, whether you like their politics or not, who believe in something and who believe in what I think is a essential element of American freedom. I'm convinced that in 1989, when Chinese students occupied Tiananmen Square, week after week after week, when the people of Beijing supported that demonstration, had they had anything even vaguely resembling the sort of private gun ownership we have in the United States of America, China would be a free and democratic country today. Millions of people would be out of prisons and concentration camps. Millions of babies that moms and dads wanted to have would be alive and with those moms and dads. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just that to me, I just, I don't see any way around the fact that, you know, you could see it in the streets in 1989. You could see the fact they sent troops in and the people in the streets went and blocked the, the, the trucks coming with soldiers and talked to the soldiers. And they, in essence, they sent the troops in to pacify the, the demonstration and the people of Beijing pacified the troops. I mean, the, the support is there and, and yet they don't have the means. And I, I'm convinced that our freedom, the idea of the second amendment isn't that anytime we decide the government is, you know, gone over the edge a little bit that we start shooting things up. That's not the idea. The idea is never to have to use those weapons. But, and it's not for government kind of going over the line a little bit because government goes over that line all the time. If you wanted to look at serious violations of rights and say, oh, then we should start using our second amendment rights and let's take on the government, you're crazy because they violate our rights all the time. Those, that second amendment right is there for very horrendous government oppression. And it, it also, I think, helps us every day that laws are made anywhere in the country because there's, the, there's this tendency of crazy ideas sometimes to get put forward. And if those ideas check through a couple of checks, like, well, could we actually do that? Would that work? Wouldn't we find that people would be angry with us or resist? Some of those checks aren't there. Those ideas start to come up more and more, and then sometimes they get instituted. And, and we live in a country in which politicians have a whole bunch of ideas that they can't really bring up or try to implement because they know 
there is too much resistance. And that resistance is not just someone writing a letter to the editor. It is a unified resistance among the population that could only be overcome by force. And in America, government can't win by force. That is huge. In America, government can't win by force. I don't think I've ever thought that before. I've never said it quite that way. I don't even know if I've thought it that way, but I think it's true. And the reason they can't is because we have more force. They've got nukes, they've got planes and stuff, but of course they don't have them unless we fly them. Um, but in essence, the public is better armed. The American public is better armed than the government. And yet there's no fear. The government doesn't have any reason to fear because unless the government is oppressing us, these guns are in the hands of little old ladies and little old men and shopkeepers and people who are traveling to go do their business and just don't know what neighborhood they might be in. And these are, these, and these are the guns that the guy grabs and runs to the church to defend the people because he hears the gunfire. This is, this is uh, it, it, there's a, a reality to that that I think it's easy for people to dismiss. It's easy for people to say, oh, Paul, you're crazy. You're talking about people having gun battles all the time. We're beyond that. We're more sophisticated than that. And thankfully, in places like Poland and Czechoslovakia uh, and, and other places, you've had people who were disarmed, who had the courage and the guts to come out into the streets and to do with their bodies what they're doing in Hong Kong. They're, they're disarmed. And that's, so they're having to have the guts to use their bodies as weapons because they don't have weapons. And because the government doesn't have to respect, the, doesn't have to fear the force of the people of Hong Kong. They're disarmed. We don't ever want to be disarmed. And I say that as someone who personally, I can't own a gun. I refused to register for the draft on principle when I was, what, 20 years old. I was convicted. I'm a felon. Thank goodness I can vote here in Virginia, but I cannot own a gun. And I'd like to, because I'd like to be part of the defense of America. I don't mean just against foreign people, but if something went down in my neighborhood, I'd like to be able to help because I trust myself. I'm not a hothead. I'd, I'd do something good. I trust other people too. I, we made a, a little video years ago uh, making this point that anytime I hear guns are flying off the shelves, you know, during the Obama administration, you'd hear that from at different times because they were afraid there'd be some gun control measure. It made me feel safer. It made me feel safer, not because I'm going to, you know, power up with a bunch of weaponry. I can't. It made me feel safer because the more my neighbors are armed, the better. Not that every person who might get their hands on a gun is good, but the majority are. And you look at, at areas of the country where there's gun ownership are not the areas that have high crime. So it's it, this issue, it, it just seems to me that, that as soon as someone comes up with a, a gun control or gun safety measure, 
that actually would prevent some of these mass shootings or other killings, then let's talk about it. Until then, you know what? You're really better off offering prayers and your, your heartfelt sympathy than a bunch of stupid politics after these various events. Do you remember the Mao statement, uh, power comes from the barrel of the gun? Yes. Which, which I must say always kind of chilled me because I don't think it's quite true, uh, but there is an element of truth to it. And when the people in power want to take away the guns from the people, then the people in general aren't in power. I mean, there's a, there's a sense that, that power, I mean, we believe in, in America, we're allegedly believing in the, the, the people are sovereign. The people are the, the source of the government. So if the people don't have guns, they're not in power. It's the government that has the gun that's in power, according, right. to, according to Chairman according Mao. According to Mao. Yeah. And, and, and Mao's on to something there. He's not an idiot when it comes to political power. He certainly knew how to wield it and keep it for, for decades. It's, but it's not. If, if power was from the barrel of a gun, then Czechoslovakia and Poland would still be communist. And, but it requires a degree of unity because one or two people doing things are not going to overturn a dictatorship or, a, or an oppressive authoritarian government of whatever kind. And, and so it requires a tremendous amount of unity and it requires people being willing to sacrifice themselves oftentimes. And it amazes me, but people are willing to do that because they understand that a life without any freedom is not a life. They care about themselves, but they also care about their kids and their grandkids and their wife and husband or whoever. And, and so uh, it's, but, it, you know, somebody might think about it and say, well, but, you know, having a gun and rushing out and shooting people, that, that's not a way to live either. The point is, you don't have to rush out and shoot anybody. We have the guns. They're in the, you know, there's, you know, all this talk, like with this rally coming up, there's talk about the militias. There's talk there's going to be some militias there. Well, there, there's nothing wrong with a militia per se. If people want to train and march around and learn how to shoot guns, that's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, you know, I'm not into that, and there are some people into that who I'm really not into. But the but the reality is, we have no reason to fear these gun owners and these Second Amendment supporters. This is not where any crime's coming from. These are people who, and I happen to agree with them, but if you disagree with them, point out all the terrible acts they've, they've uh, you know, committed. I think you're gonna have a heck of a lot of trouble. And it, it just infuriates me that they have, in essence, by the governor talking about the state of emergency, and talking about these three people who are arrested in another state who are white nationalists. There were three people arrested in, in uh, Maryland, one of them's actually from Canada, who are supposedly white nationalists, you know, like the Black Panthers who were Second Amendment people. Um, little joke there. Uh, but, and now they've basically conflated these stories to make it seem that the real problem was that there were gonna be so many white nationalists at this rally 
and that it would be just like Charlottesville, as if these are the same people who came to the rally in Charlottesville. Now, I don't know, maybe there are some white nationalists, which in and of itself is not a crime, just makes you an idiot, but, but that's not a crime. But there are, they were accused of gun crimes, that they had illegal weapons or whatever that they modified. All right. But that it has a very tangential, supposedly they talked about, these three people talked about going down to this rally. That's not, not a reason to declare a state of emergency. And the way the media has run it, if you're not paying close attention, there's just this story about a rally and they don't want guns there because of the white nationalists. And, and it strikes me as a lot of folks just enjoying the ability to try to merge Second Amendment supporters with white supremacists. Everyone secretly, black or white these days, is a white supremacist. It's just gotten to be ridiculous. And, and, uh, but it, it probably ensures that I travel to Richmond on Monday. Oh, wow. Um, you know, when he's, I think twice at least in that speech that, uh, what was his name, Northam gave, um, he talked about Charlottesville. I mean, quite. It's, which is not in Virginia, right? That's, that's it is in Virginia. It is, is it in Virginia? Okay, it is in Virginia. Okay, uh, but I kept on thinking of thinking of um, of Thomas Jefferson, who was for the Second Amendment, and James Madison, who was for the Second Amendment. The way he was talking was almost as if they, he was regarding them as Nazis. I can sort of see the pictures of of Jefferson and Madison in Nazi uniforms, according to Northam, and it seemed weird. The whole thing seemed very strange and very manipulative. And yes, and, and here's a guy, this is a guy who is casting these dispersions on Second Amendment supporters, and I think he knows exactly what he's doing, who is the same guy who was caught in the blackface and Ku Klux Klan guy on a picture in his personal page on his yearbook, his medical school yearbook, he admits that, well, he, at first he apologized for that. Then the next day he said, oh, I don't think that, I don't know how that picture got there. And then there was an investigation, a law firm hired by the medical school, I think the Eastern Virginia Medical School or something, that hired this law firm. The governor was not that cooperative with the law firm, did, did get interviewed, but was not as cooperative as they would have liked from what I read, which tells you something. And they came with no conclusion. They didn't know whether, how that got there. They don't know whether he knew about it or didn't know about it, but that's an awful lot of, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt. There's been no investigation by the media for the most part. And I, it seems to me that that's, that's who should be investigating and asking some follow-up questions. But I think they don't want to. I think they like Northam. They like his politics. And if you like somebody's politics in the world of media today, you might not want to ask them any tough questions. So it's, it's, uh, it really is obnoxious to have that person be the, the person who's standing there in a position of power, acting as if people who are supporting the Constitution are somehow, you know, evil Nazis. 
Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Please catch Paul Jacob five days a week at thisiscommonsense.com and on the weekends as video and audio also available at the same site. In case you are interested, you can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, Gab and Minds under the moniker at Workman. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And at Workman.com. You can reach Paul on Facebook as well as at libertyifund.org and citizensincharge.org. Thanks for your attention. Paul appreciates it.